And so here we go, just to see what you're doing this morning, if you're wide awake on this beautiful morning. Name something in your fridge you need to thank a cow for. Oh, you've hit them all so quickly. You guys didn't even hesitate on that one. Okay, name a word or phrase that has super in it. Superman. Super glue. Super. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Can you say it backwards? <laughs> what else? Any other supers? Super bowl. Okay. Supersonic? Ooh, there you go. They had super size, superintendent, super glue, supermarket, super bowl, superman. Here's another one. Name a good place you can go when you want to cry. Closet. Bedroom. Car. <laughs> to the Lord. Oh, that was good. Was that number one? That's not number one, no. <laughs> Sounds really good, though, yeah. Here's what they said. Church, woods, closet, my car, at a friend's, a movie, the movie theater. Okay. Bathroom, bedroom was number one. Name something people deliver for a living. Pizza is there. Paper is there. What's that? Car parts? Oh, there you get right up your alley here, right? Yeah. The mail, somebody said. Here's what we got. Babies. Yeah, that's true. Furniture, packages, pizza, mail, newspapers. And number one? Because uh, hmm. nobody said it but me. That's why it's a zero. Okay, so. What are some of the main characters associated with the book of Revelation? Jesus. John. Who else? 144,000. Who else? The 24 elders. Good. Okay, here we go. Here's what you had. You've I said most all of these already. Um... The ones that we want to focus on when we get to the two prophets. We're in Revelation 11. Okay, how far we get there today, we'll see. So in Revelation chapter 11, let's set the scene and let's remind ourselves, because some people weren't here. They were in other classes here this past uh, month, a uh, couple months. So let's kind of just do what we did last week with a quick review. Who writes the book? When? Okay. Towards the latter time of the first century, right around 9095. We don't know exactly when. Where's he writing from? Okay, he's on the Isle of Patmos. Why is he there? He's in exile. Persecution by the church is taking place. And so, uh, uh, so he is there on that island. And so he's writing this letter at the direction of Jesus Christ, who's telling him what to do. And so as he's writing this, he starts off the very beginning. Who does he see in the very first chapter? He has a conversation with him. It's the Lord himself, and the Lord is moving among seven, okay, the candlesticks which represent the seven churches. And so he starts off with the book with a vision of Jesus who tells him to write these things down. Then chapters 2 and 3, what do we have? He's writing to seven churches, and in each of these churches, there's issues that the Lord wants to address, and so there's little postcards 
little post-it notes that are filling up chapters 2 and 3, addressing some of their issues. After he's talked about contemporary situations, then all of a sudden he starts the prophetic section of the book, the visionary section of the book. Chapter 4, what happens to John? He's caught up into heaven, and what's he see? First thing that catches his attention. The throne in the middle of this uh, situation is there's a throne. On the throne, there's a throne sitter. And going all around the throne, what's happening? What, what types of things does he see? Sees thunder. He, see, or he sees thunder. He hears the thunder. Sees the lightning. What else does he see that stands out? That's kind of the rainbow. Not, a, not an arching rainbow, but a rainbow that is totally a circle now. And so he sees all those things, and he also hears all kinds of, of uh, loud praising and worshiping that is being done about upon him that sits on the throne. That's chapter 4. And the throne sitter has something in his hand. He has a scroll. The scroll, as we described it, is probably an explanation, or probably a, not an explanation, but a description of how to get to the very end where Jesus Christ takes control of the earth. And so he says, who's worthy to take this scroll? In other words, to just start opening it and to get the end times rolling. And John looks around and his first reaction is, no one is worthy. And he breaks into weeping. And then all of a sudden, who comes on the stage? Yeah, and what, what happens? Heaven breaks out into this, into this worship that says, worthy... Yeah, and so there's this tremendous worship that's taking place as the Lamb, the, the Lion of Judah, takes the scroll. And so now he has it in his hand. There's people worshiping from all tongues, nations, tribes, languages, all those who are in heaven that basically the rapture of the church had already taken place. And uh, in their worship, what did they cast before the throne? Their crowns. Okay. And so then chapter 6 is all of a sudden the beginning of the scroll being opened. And so chapter 6 is the description of some of the different seals being opened and the beginning of these judgments that are going to bring us to the very end where Jesus Christ is going to take over the entire uh, creation. So they start off and they give us the information and then we get through the various different seals. We get up to right there, right before the seal number 7. And he stops and when he stops, he wants to give some information about explaining how certain things have happened in the first three and a half years. That's the seals. What's happened and how things got to where they are. And so in chapter 7, who does he talk about? The 144,000 to explain how the gospel was being propagated that led to all this persecution that he's been mentioning in the fifth seal and the sixth seal. And so he mentions that there has been 144,000. What do you know about them besides 144,000? Okay, 12,000 from each one of the tribes. Anything else? Gender. Okay. Um, and so these 144,000 are sealed by God. He explains that. That gives us that background information. And then he resumes the opening of the seventh seal. When he opens the seventh seal, beginning of chapter 8, there's a hush in heaven for a half hour. And when he opens the seal, what, what emanates out of that seventh seal? The seven trumpets. 
All of a sudden, that initiates the seven trumpets, which are described in chapters 8 and 9. And what we've pointed out as now, after he took a little bit of a break and gave background information, now he's giving some chronological information what's going to happen in the second three and a half years. So he's given us tidbits of information. The first three and a half years, second three and a half years, the beginning of the trumpet judgment. And he talks about these trumpet judgments as being universal. And they're worse than the seals. They're universal, except for there's at least one where the people of God are protected from it. And the results this time are one-third of what is affected. (laughs) Everything is a good vegetation, water, fresh water, and, okay, the ocean water, which would affect the food. One-third of what happens to one-third of the population. Okay, one-third of the population. Now, a quarter of the population died during the seals. Now, in the trumpets, another one-third will die. So what we have is this ongoing uh, judgments that are just absolutely devastating, and they're so bad that the last three trumpets are called woes. Chapter 8, verse 13. That he says this is even worse than anything that's gone before. And so he talks about them, and when he gets to the sixth trumpet... Some of the information seems to coincide with the very last days, weeks of the tribulation where you have the city of Jerusalem being under under, um, um, a huge earthquake. That's what happens at the city. Um, Only a remnant seemed to survive. And uh, Armageddon with the wars taking place. And he also adds in chapter 9 as he's giving information about the sixth seal or six trumpet, excuse me, he gives information that the people as a whole, the general population of the earth, what are they like? Okay, they're just hard-hearted. They continue in their idolatry, their murders, their thievery. And he makes it very clear. He's giving us information that despite the, the work of God, clearly the work of God, that people understand, because people even said, hide us from running into caves, hide us from the wrath of God. The general population understands it. But what do they do with their hearts? They harden their hearts. Who do they remind you of in the Old Testament? Pharaoh, who had all these plagues. And these people are the same thing, the general response. So that brings us to where we were last week. So what happens is we've gotten this background information, this, this um, chronology of the book, where he gives some things in order. Then he took a break between the sixth and seventh seal He does the same thing with the trumpets. He gives us some chronology of the trumpets, and then before he gets to the seventh trumpet, he all of a sudden takes a break and gives us background information. Information of why has it gotten this bad? Why are people so non-responsive? And that brings us into that section of where we were in chapter 10. Chapter 10, the seventh trumpet has yet to be blown. The the third woe has yet to happen. But he makes comment that at this moment, all of a sudden he has a vision of a mighty angel in heaven, a great angel. And in that angel's hand is a little book that apparently has more of the details of what's happening in the rest of the uh, tribulation period. And John is all of a sudden, he sees this angel, and this angel raises his hand and says, time shall be no more. Give us a different rendering of that. There's no time left, okay? Now, the King James says, time shall be no more. Basically, the better translation would be, no more delay. 
in response to the people who have earlier said, Lord, how long until you avenge us? Chapter five, chapter 6, the fifth uh, seal. And they were told, just wait. Just wait until my timetable runs its course. And all of a sudden this angel's indicating as he makes this oath, he is indicating it's a, we're ready. We're ready for the very final stages of things, which is going to be the seventh trumpet. And so he gives us to this point, which is really critical, everything is pretty bad. Everything from a world point of view is absolute. People are terrible. They're rejecting God. There's tremendous judgment. And with all this, the angel is saying there's no more delay. In other words, it's just the end is almost here. It's in the last weeks or months. And um, then what he does is he explains to us how it's gotten this bad. He gives us more background information. He, keeps, he doesn't go to the seventh trumpet yet, but he's going to give us some details. And the details that he gives us is in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. He talks about the measuring of the temple. And so this is talking about things that have already been going on in the tribulation. He's going to tell us why they are going on, explaining how they got this way. So chapter 11, let's go there. There was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall be tread underfoot for 42 months. There's a whole lot there that, that we kind of gloss over. But what happens is John is given a staff, a measuring reed. And he's told to measure certain things. Now, what happens, give a little bit more background. This is interesting. John, up to this point, has had uh, these visions. But while he's getting visions, he is interactive with the visions. It's not like he's sitting here in a pew and watching everything up on a platform. That's not, John has been interactive with a lot of things that have already taken place, such as um, he's been the one who he, even when he got at the, into heaven at the very beginning in chapter 1, he sees Jesus Christ, and he's worshiping, and there's interaction between him and Jesus Christ. He's called up into heaven, and when he gets there, he's interacting and to the point that he's weeping. He's, I mean, he's fully engaged in this entire situation. He has conversations with the angels who are, as they're showing him things, he's asking, they're answering questions. And now, um, or in chapter 10, he was told to eat the little book that had the prophecies. And it would be sweet to his mouth, but... And we talk about what that was. The sweetness being some of the good things that are going to happen, such as what's good is about end times. Some will get saved. What else? Jesus is coming back. Okay. What else? Who's defeated? Saints defeated. Okay. And so we have the good thing. What's the bad things about that same period of time? Okay, so there's more death, there's more destruction. And so he eats that little book. Now he's told to take measurements of the temple, so he's engaged. From John's perspective, from the writer's perspective, what does this say to you and me? It says to us that this is very real. This isn't a dream. 
that John had. This was a, he was participating. These are real events to him that he is recording under the direction of the Spirit of God. Now, the read that he has given, it's interesting how it's been used in the past. Okay, it has the idea of it's, it's literally from a Jordan River. There was a cane, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, that uh, reed that grew 15 to 20 feet. These reeds were strong enough that they did use them for measuring, but they were also pliable enough that they would whittle them down at times and make them pens or writing instruments. And so they at times would use them for walking sticks or other different areas. And in the Old Testament, Ezekiel is given the exact same type of a, this calamos, and he is told to be measuring the temple that is going to be during the millennial era. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay, but there's, a, there's a, 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 a previous time where measurements are being taken. Why is that? Why is God telling his prophet, Ezekiel telling now John his prophet, to measure the temple? Is it because God doesn't know the measurements? Is it because... Well, let me rephrase that. Why would you get... So you're, you're living at your property. Why might you have a survey done, what do you call them, of your property? Um, a better term? Yeah, yeah, get you, yeah. So you're getting your, your measurements of your property to know where this line goes from this line. Why would you do that? To prove ownership, okay? Um, so if there's any dispute with a neighbor, what are you able to do? Okay. Here's, here's the point. Alice, you've got to stay two feet over from my property line. Okay, when you build your mansion. You've got to be two feet over from it. Okay, and so you're giving this measurement not because you don't have a clue, but it really is a legal type of a, a proof, a document that you can then enforce. So if we take it from that point of view, okay, that God is having this measurement made, okay, what is he telling John exactly to measure? Is he to measure the entire temple area? What? Okay. How do you get Jewish area? Okay. Okay. So what part of the temple is, is he specifically told to be measuring? Okay. The holy place and what else? The, the most holy place? Okay. So he's told to measure the temple. Okay, let's, let's take, break this down. The word temple here is the word that we have naos. Okay? And in this point, it is not, and it wasn't used this way in the New Testament. It wasn't for the entire complex. Remember that the temple that Jesus, uh, in his lifetime, the temple that John would have seen, that John with Jesus was even in that temple area, it was a large complex. He's not told to measure the entire complex, okay? He is told to measure the naos, which is usually the holy place, the holy of holies, getting the, the innermost part of the sanctuary. The, um, the naos, the holy part, the, the temple or naos, was for the priests only. So why is he measuring that only? Or is he told to measure something else? Okay, let, let, me, let me see if we can follow. The, the temple, one of you have already, a couple of you already said, the way out there, the farthest outermost parts of the temple in the New Testament, what courtyard is that called? 
the Gentile courtyard. That's where what happened in Jesus' day. What were they using that for? The marketplace, the buying and selling, so that the Gentiles couldn't worship. Then you come in a little bit closer towards the holy place. Who gets the next section? Take a guess. Which Jews? Not all of the Jews. The ladies had a section. So if we said, okay, there's the court of the Gentiles. This area here is for the Jewish ladies. Okay? Then the next section, who could cross into? The Jewish men. Okay? And this was the, one of the inner courts. Then it got into the building itself. Okay? Who could enter into the building? The priests. And they had this outer part of the building, the holy place. But then the most innermost part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, what was in there? The Ark of the Covenant. Okay, who could enter there? The high priest, how often? Once a year. Okay, and what separated it? That huge curtain. What happened to it at the crucifixion? Okay, okay, so you got the basic picture of this. So John is told to measure... This area, the wording indicates this area, okay, which is for the Jewish priests. That's the only area he's told to measure. The altar, where's the altar? So let's bring it out here. Let's just pretend this is the altar area where the Jewish men could come, and this is where the Passover lamb, different things, the public sacrifices were made. So he's told to measure that area and he's told to measure the altar or something that includes more than just the priests. Does that make sense? Okay. This, would, this seems to indicate, okay, the Jewish territory. And so he's told to do that measurement and he's told to measure something else. What would you say? Those who worship there. So he's measuring as if all of a sudden now think this measurement through. Is he walking up? And I'm not trying to be silly, but so he's measured the facility and then he comes up and he holds the rod and says, okay, do we get his height? Do we get his girth? Do we get... Is that what he's meaning? No, there's more to it than just taking statistical measurements like they do at the doctor's office. There's far more to this. And so what happens is he's told to measure the people that are there. And you and I would have to ask, is it the priest only? I don't think so. Because of this idea that there's, he's brought us out to the altar, so there's people here. Somewhere in this end time period, there is a group of true worshipers that are taking place. That are going through the system that is in place at that time, which would be the Jewish system because it's reverted back to an Old Testament concept. So is it the measurement of the remnant of the true worshipers that are spoken of by the book of, I, of Zechariah? And so as he measures them, he is also told, do not measure. It. What is he told not to take a measurement of? Which, which portion? In our building here, where would we be talking about? Yeah, that area out there. Okay, he's told not to measure that. So if we have this concept... Okay, uh, we have then that building that would, let me see if I can get this to work. Okay, that's your holy place. The holy of holies in there. 
this area would be right on this whole outer area would be where the men were. The Jewish ladies would be there. Then these walls of partitions that Ephesians talks about that are broken down in the church age that separated the Jews in their worship from all of this area, which would be the Gentiles. Now, this is based on the New Testament court that Herod had, had developed. And so he's told not to measure everything that's in that tan area, but he's told to measure the areas that are in the white, basically, where, where the people are worshiping, truly worshiping the Lord. And so we come down, and he's told not to measure the court of the area because it's given to the Gentiles. And we read as well, he says that um, something else that, whoops, we're going right along, that, he's, that is not only that is given to the Gentiles, but the holy city is also going to be trod underfoot. The holy city is what? Jerusalem. And so you have these areas outside that are going to be trod underfoot for how long? How long is 42 months? And how many days? In prophetic terminology. 1260 days. So now we're getting into these numbers that are very, very important. People will look at this and they're going to say, okay, we can't take it literally. Why not? He's giving specific numbers. And so we've had 42 months of the sealed judgments. Now he's giving us a picture of giving us background information of the second 42 months, three and a half years. Remember, he's given us all the details up to this very point where number seven trumpet was going to be Armageddon, destruction of Jerusalem, and the return of Jesus Christ. What has taken place during this period of time up to these last few weeks? So this is the details that he's giving us. He's saying that the court of the Gentile, I'm sorry, he's saying that this whole area has been overrun and the city has been overrun by those who during that second half of the tribulation, they have basically dominated this area. In fact, okay, what he's telling us is several things. Number one, and this is really important, what this reveals to you and me is the temple will be rebuilt. Okay, there is going to be, I have no reason to, in, in my wildest dreams of interpretation, I have no reason to understand this other than a real physical rebuilt temple that God is going to build. The question comes is when? When is this te temple going to be rebuilt? Okay, so let's go back. Let's just do a little quick study. How many temples were there? How many, how many were there supposed to be at any one time? Just one. Just one. Okay. Was there more than one temple built over history at that same location? Yes, there was. Okay, who built the first one? Solomon built the first one. Who funded it? David. Okay, David got it all together. What happened to that temple? Well, it lasted for several generations until... Okay, right around the 586, okay, it lasted from David's time, say a thousand, so it lasted roughly, you know, right around those 400 years, and then it was destroyed by what nation came in and took the Jews out of there at that time? Bab Babylon, Babylon came in, and they destroyed it and totally eliminated it. The Jews had to stay out of the land for how many years? Because they forgot to observe all those Sabbath years. They were out for 70 years. And so 
Um, they were, then they have the next temple when the Jews were allowed to come back. And this is all with what Daniel had seen and predicted. When they come back, they rebuild the temple. You have the story of it that Zerubbabel is the, uh, is the governor that leads the people back. You have um, Joshua, the high priest, that is going to initiate it. And they build the temple. They don't build the walls around the temple until who comes along? Nehemiah, and that's going to be a few years later. But they start off with the main building project, they build the temple. And the people who are old enough that as little, little kids, they remember the temple that Solomon had built. And they see this new temple. What do they do? They weep. Because it is nothing like they remember the good old days. And so they're glad, but at the same time, they're, it's like, whoa, have we lost something? We're glad it's back, but it's not like it used to be. And so what happens is this temple that Zerubbabel and the Jews made, it's going to last for several generations, and Herod comes on the scene, and Herod wants to become favored with the Jews. He claims to be the king of the Jews. He isn't physically related to him. He's an Edomite. Okay? And so he, he figures that the way to get to people to like him, can you imagine a politician doing this? Um, the way to get people to like me is to spend lots of money for something they might like. You know, like, hey, I'm going to get to like me, I'm going to wipe out all of your college debt. Okay? Can you imagine that possibly ever happening? Okay? That to try to persuade people. Well, Herod's idea of getting rid of college debt was, I'm going to fix up your temple. And so he funded this. And he built a magnificent temple that became one of the wonders of the world at that time. And so it's been, it's rebuilt. That's the one Jesus goes into. That's the one that John as an apostle, as a young man uh, in his early years, that's where he worshiped. So he has full recollection of this temple. Now remember, John is writing in what year? We said at the very beginning. 9095. What, what has happened to the temple since he's been a young man? In 70 A.D., the Romans came in and, yeah, they totally obliterated it. They wiped it out. And they killed, um, they killed at least a million Jews trying to wipe them out and kick them out of the land. And they stayed out of the land up until 1948, okay, when they were a, a, a nation. But from 70 A.D., the Jews were scattered worldwide. And they only started going back in the early part of the 19th century and declared their nationality again in 1948. But the temple that Herod had built had been destroyed. And so we know in the Bible there was three temples built at the same site. And we understand from the book of Revelation there's going to be another temple built at that same site. Okay, And that's what we would call the tribulation temple. That will be destroyed in time as well. And then there's going to be one more temple. It's going to be the temple that will last during the millennium. Okay, the millennial temple. And so we haven't seen the number four and five yet. But the number four is the one we're focusing on. And that's the temple that John is being told to measure. Okay, so you've got to think this through. Put it back from John's perspective. At the moment John sees this and John recognizes what this is, in his mind, what does that say to a Jewish man living in 95, 90, 95 A.D.? What does that tell him? 
it's going to, they're going to be restored. This temple is going to be restored. Okay, so John is, this has got to be exciting for John to measure this. Okay, because he hasn't seen it for decades because his experience, he had been there. Now, what happened during the Jewish wars? Where was John? We don't specifically know. Where was he when Jerusalem was sacked and destroyed? We don't know. But he knows that his people have, are scattered. At 90, 95 AD, the Jewish people are scattered, and he's being told they're going to be regathering, and he's going to be remeasuring these people. So from John's perspective as a nationality, as a Jew, would this be positive to him? Oh yeah, his people are going to be recovered. What does it say to him about God, God's relationship to his, na- his nation, his, his kin? Yeah, God hasn't forgotten the Jews. This is, Revo- this is the book of Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. This is those chapters in play in John's idea. That God has made a covenant promise to the Jews and God will keep it. Okay, even despite what John has experienced in his lifetime. So he knows the temple is going to be rebuilt. Even though he understands that in his preaching time, in his ministry since 30 AD when he's been going out preaching, there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. He understands that. He knows that. He's written that in the Gospels and in the epistles that he wrote. He understands. But he also knows that the Lord isn't done with the Jewish people. That he will fulfill his promises to them when we get into that last age, which is basically those last seven years really are part of the, the the last few years of the entire Old Testament era, which we talked about months ago already when we started this. So, The temple is going to be rebuilt. The question we have is, when is this temple rebuilt? That John is going to be measuring. When is it going to be rebuilt? What do we know about the temple? It's it's got to be in existence for 42 months. Okay? So where does that take you in the tribulation period? By when does it have to be rebuilt? By the middle of the tribulation, it has to be rebuilt. Okay? It has to be there. And um, we also know that according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, who sits on the mercy seat claiming to be God? The Antichrist. So it's got to be there. It's got to be there by middle of the tribulation. Beyond that, what do we know? Okay? Okay, it's going to take some time. But again, depending upon the resources given to it, depending upon the energy given to it, it could be built in a speedy fashion. I mean, it'll, it'll take some time, but it's going to be built. It's not like it was back in Herod's day. Remember, back in Herod's day, he started the project right around 10 uh, BC. Uh, no, it was before that. It was 40 or so. And he started the project of the temple and making it beautiful. And when they, when Jesus says... You know, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. They were like, Herod's been building this temple for decades. And his sons aren't even done with it. So we've got a totally different building program concept that's going to be taking place than decades. But here's what we do know. Okay. Is it built before the tribulation starts? We don't know. Is it built in the first half? Well, it's got to be, you know, some, it's got to be close to or in the, so please, here's, here's my point, okay? 
you know, when it's being built. Is there the possibility that Antichrist, part of the treaty in, to get along with the Jews, is propagating the temple? Would that, would that get their fancy? Okay, we don't know. Please don't make your end times Bible study about materials that we don't know about. It's, it's good to speculate. I'm, I'm not saying that. And it's interesting to speculate. But it, it, this, is, this is my bugaboo. When people say, well, we're studying end times and I'm studying all the stuff on the internet about what could be happening. Well, if it's on the internet, it must be true. Okay. Just, we don't know when the temple is going to be built. Is it interesting that they are collecting things even now for that? It's very interesting. But again, we can't say conclusively, this means the Bible is true. And it's like, really? Okay. It could, how do we know that we're not another 500 years away from the tribulation? Oh, we agree with that. We agree with that. But how do we know that it may not be for another hundred years? We don't know. We don't know. Let's be real about it. I got saved 50 years ago this past month. Woohoo! Okay. When I got saved in 73, end times the films, um, uh, what, were the, what were the movies? Uh, Left Behind... A thief in the night. Yeah, those, those were the things that we first... And we were so excited. And we were convinced the rapture was going to happen. Let's bring us... Everybody join me. We're at the year 2000. Okay. Yeah, we're going to get into... You know, you better store up everything because January 1st, the entire internet system that... What was his name? Built... Al Gore, uh, that he built, okay, that entire system was going to collapse and we won't be able to buy anything after January 1st. Do you remember any of this conversation? Okay. And so my point is, it is interesting. It is, uh, you know, really for, for it, it's tantalizing. It's fun. It's in, but let's get back to what we know for sure. And let's make sure we're on solid ground. What we know for sure is we don't know for sure when this temple is going to be built. We just don't know. Okay. And we don't know when the rapture is going to take place. We don't know when the tribulation takes place. To us, the stage is set. But could he leave the curtain closed for another 10 years? And again, if he does, we all say, agree with what Pooch said. God help us if it's a delay. But that's what Paul said, too. Okay, so, in reality, the bottom line is, let's be, be okay with saying we don't know. Because the Bible doesn't reveal those things. Remember we had this conversation last week? John saw things that he was told, don't write them down. Don't write certain things down. And so God's given us the information that we want, he wants us to know, and it is sufficient or enough. Okay, so with that little diatribe, let's move on. Okay, the sitting area around the temple, here's what we know, will become dominated by the Gentiles in the second half of the tribulation. The Jews are going to face some horrible, horrible times. Okay, 
during this time period of, of this future history. We understand that. We know from Jesus' words. Jesus said that when you see the abomination of desolation taking place, Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, in other words, when we now have more information as we're beyond the words of Jesus, when Antichrist goes into the temple and it says he is God, which happens at the middle point of the tribulation, Jesus said, if you're in the fields, don't even go home and get your stuff. Just do what? Take off and head for the mountains. Who's he talking to? He's not talking to the church. church. He's talking to the Jewish people. He is saying what's going to happen to them during the second half of the tribulation. Yo, they're going to be, they're going to be hunted down. They are going to be like never before in history, which the Jews, do they have a history of being persecuted? Okay, so that's going to be the worst time for them. So during that time period, God is saying, measure this out. There's going to be 42 months. You're going to be going through just absolute terrible, terrible time here on this planet Earth. So it appears, if from an earthly point of view, it appears as if God's program is it's in danger. Right? From a human perspective, if, you are, if you're living there, let's, let's exaggerate. You're a Jew, you're living during these 42 months, you claim to be God's people, what does it look like for you at this moment. God's forgotten us. God's abandoned us. It's just, just, okay? Which, by the way, have Jews over a period of time during the Holocaust, were there, were there Jews who said we felt as God, God had abandoned us? Yeah, okay. So there as a group, that's what's happening. And so all of a sudden what we have is... You know, as we've already talked about, Antichrist will come in. He will sit on there. These are a combination of other texts that we've already discussed earlier in this uh, session on the book of Revelation <clears throat> that he's talking about. So we, we know all this is going to happen at that middle of the tribulation. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a couple, two weeks from now when we get to chapter 13 and talk more about Antichrist and some of that background. That how he's going to go after the saints, the Jews... Okay, and to overcome them, and uh, the entire world will be worshiping him. It is at this moment that God is saying, John, measure the temple. What does that mean to John, to the Jews, to us who are looking there and seeing this happen? Okay, God's laying claim to the temple grounds. He's saying to John, I own this. Antichrist may be there, sitting there, but he's only a temporary character. This is, yeah, God's saying, this is mine. This is mine. I am putting boundaries on Antichrist. He thinks he's going to be in control for how long? From, from Antichrist, from Satan's point of view, how long are they going to be in control? What's God telling him in these verses? 42 months seems like a long time. But in the scope of everything? Yeah. Okay. God's telling them, I am in charge. You think you're in charge, but actually I am. I am the one totally in charge, and I'm taking it back. So remember now, we're sitting at the sixth trumpet. And he's telling them at the sixth trumpet, basically, God's taking everything back. 
as bad as the world is getting, I'm taking it back. I'm going to claim it. It's going to be mine. And even though in the midst of, and this is important from John's perspective, who is seeing the future and saying and wondering, you know, maybe he's wondering like Elijah of old. Elijah said, I am the only one left who is worshiping Jehovah. I and I alone. And God says to him, no, you're not. I have 5,000 others. God always has a remnant. God always has that faith. He no, it'll never happen that the Jews will be totally destroyed. It'll never happen. God is saying that he's going to measure these people. I am not forsaking these people. And even when they're on the brink of annihilation, I'm going to come and rescue them. <coughs> Why? Because they are my... Why did God choose them? I don't know. That doesn't, that's not the question. The question isn't why did God do it. It's what will God do with them? He will never leave them nor forsake them. And so that's his point. And he's going to bring those Jews, even a remnant of them, he's going to bring back to bring them to a point of faith in Jesus Christ. That's Revelation 11, 1 and 2. That's what he's saying. As it is in the context of a bleak, bleak, despairing moment, he's saying, there's hope. There's hope that I'm still in charge. And so the question becomes, what does God use to bring those people to a point of faith in him? When they are being persecuted for 42 months, what does he use to draw the Jews to him? The two prophets, the next paragraph. And he explains in detail how he has not forsaken how he's going to be working, and how he's going to be drawing them. That's next week. We'll pick up from there. Okay? Thanks. Wake up the person next to you. Tell them we got a break and then worship. Okay?